I start by managing the owner's expectations immediately. And a big one for me is telling them that they're going to have to expect complete changes in strategy. And they'll come back sometimes and I'll be saying, the thing that I said I wouldn't do yesterday, I want to do today. And then the day after saying, nope, I'm going back to plan A again. Because that means that when they're open to that, I can kind of do what the wound needs rather than feeling obliged to go through the plan that they're sort of on board with and being worried that they're going to think I don't know what I'm doing. But actually what we're doing is being fleet of foot and dealing with what's in front of us at that time. Welcome to the Vet Times podcast, a concise, topical, clinical and informative podcast from the people at Vet Times. Treatment fundamentals for wounds should be the same, regardless of the severity or diverse causes. In this podcast, small animal specialist John Hall joins us to discuss all the important wound care considerations and innovations. Welcome, John. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Paul. So wound care, in terms of initial wound management, what are the important considerations for vets? Yeah, I suppose for me, um, one of the biggest ones is that we need to protect the wound from the bacteria that's on us and in the hospital as well. Uh, so maybe initially protecting it with um, a clean towel or clean sheet, something lymph-free, and that we always wear gloves when we're handling the animals and, and sort of poking around anywhere near the wound. And as soon as we've sort of protected them against that, providing analgesia, often for us, we get an IV in and then give them some intravenous opioid, something like that. And at that point, then we can start thinking about how we're going to decontaminate that wound. A big thing, I think, for us, we see quite a lot of polytrauma, um, and so it's making sure that the animal is stable. So that triage, making sure there's nothing life-threatening because it's kind of uncommon that the wound itself is the most life-threatening thing. It can absolutely be the most eye-catching thing, um, but sometimes it's not the one that's going to kill them. And so once we're on top of that analgesia, once we're protecting them from contamination and once we know that they're safe, then we can move on to that initial wound management. And and in terms of that part, um, it's it's mainly about decontamination. So we all know, I think, that infection and contamination are different. So contamination is stuff being on the surface of the wound or, you know, even numbers of bacteria being on the surface of the wound. But until they reach that critical number with the replicating and populating, that's not truly an infection at this stage. So we'll decontaminate, if possible, before there's an infection by removing foreign material and bacteria. And I've just got a little protocol for that, really. Mm. So we will pack the wound with sterile gel, we'll clip, very widely and if you think you've gone wide enough go even wider and certainly for me that is to make sure that you've clipped at least the area that will be covered by any dressing that you place on there later because hair contains about three times the amount of bacteria if you put a nice dressing on top and you're keeping that whole area warm and moist you're just inviting the bacteria to dinner if you've clipped all that hair back and then you've aseptically prepared the skin as if you're preparing a surgical site, then happy days, really. You've massively reduced the bacterial load. And when you place your dressing to help protect the wound, and maybe even to encourage the next phase of wound healing, you're looking much, much better. So it's it's high volume lavage. Um, volume is more important than what you use. And we've moved away from using anything with chemicals or antibiotics in. So even just a shower head and potable tap water or if you want sterile saline or any other isotonic solution is absolutely appropriate. But copious lavage, and that'll get all that gel with the bits of hair and stuff stuck in it. And then we can think about dressings. That'd be my initial approach, I think. Right, okay. In terms of key factors in designing a treatment strategy, what are your thoughts here? I start, I reckon, by managing the owner's expectations immediately because I kind of get an understanding of what they're able to do 
what maybe they're prepared to do and then what fundamentally they can sometimes are able to or afford to do. So that might mean there's a pragmatic option if there are necessary restrictions. So, for example, we've got a contaminated whole leg degloving. That's going to be very, very challenging. We're going to want skin on that leg at the end of the day. We can't just let it heal by itself. So we're looking at multiple surgeries. And so it might be that amputation is the most appropriate thing for that owner and that animal. You know, a fractious cat who won't go through those procedures without being miserable, um, you know, might be better to do something pragmatic and amputate. But I think it's always about prioritising decontamination and then letting the owners know that what we're going to be doing is evaluating what tissue remains uh, and maybe even spending a few days doing that. So getting them on board for this being quite a journey and getting them on board for finding it stressful and it potentially even panning out over weeks, depending on what strategy we do choose uh, and and getting them in, in the headspace for cost. And a big one for me is, is telling them that they're going to have to expect complete changes in strategy and they'll come back sometimes and I'll be saying, the thing that I said I wouldn't do yesterday, I want to do today. And then the day after saying, no, nope, I'm going back to plan A again, because that means that when they're open to that, I can kind of do what the wound needs rather than feeling obliged to go through the plan that they're sort of on board with and being worried that they're going to think I don't know what I'm doing. But actually what we're doing is being fleet of foot and dealing with what's in front of us at that time. And once they're on board for this kind of approach, and once I've got an idea about what their expectation is for the outcome, that might be the leg off, or it might be, well, I want a completely fully functioning leg again with skin all over it and a complete deglove. Well, then I'm going to have to manage their expectation in terms of complication rates and risks, what kind of surgical procedures might be needed. But if we're looking at second intention, which can be a good option, maybe if it doesn't cross the joint or something, we're just going to manage their idea of like timings on that. And actually that they're going to be have to be in a position where they're doing some wound management as well and making sure they're not overly squeamish. So I think a key factor for me, I'll start with what's my end point in this current situation with the with the factors we've got and then almost work backwards. How do I achieve that with these people and with this animal and make sure that everything's in place for a plan moving forward so they will just agree to kind of whatever the wound needs at the time rather than we set out a plan and then they're really disappointed if it doesn't follow it. Right. So from that communication, as in a lot of areas in veterinary medicine, but it sounds really, really key here because there could be a long journey ahead and they're going to have to be really on board and accept that things might change on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely right. And if you've got that sort of buy-in, then you're winning from the start, really, because even if it goes wrong and that leg's coming off, for example, why they've been warned and that's still an effective treatment strategy for the animal who's happy and functional at the end of the day. So in terms of dressings, what advice can you offer here? Because, I mean, there's quite a lot of options, I'm guessing, to choose from. Yeah, loads of options. And it, it's always changing. And it's it's a fascinating area because of that. But it can make it really confusing. And certainly I was guilty in my early days being in practice of having a drawer full of stuff that I've been given by various um, company representatives and just being like, oh, cool, well, let's try this one because this one's meant to make it heal better or this one's meant to do that. And trying to make maybe use the dressings that I had and fitting them to the wound, hoping they'd do something magical with the wound. Whereas I think over time I've moved more now towards choosing a dressing that is based on the needs of the wound. So have a really good look at that wound and assess it and assess it over different time points. And then that can be very difficult, I think, in practice, particularly if different people keep sort of taking on the reins um, because of who's working on what days or, you know, whose appointment list is full. So photographs of progress is really helpful attached to the records. And also everybody being clear in in your workplace that they're allowed to change 
the plan because it's really restrictive if people are worried about changing their pal's plan and actually the wound needs something different. So for me, I, I look at the wound and I decide, well, is there an action I need the dressing to perform here? Does it need further decontamination? If it does, then I need a dressing that's going to provide debridement. And so that could be something like, for example, slightly older school, but I still like it very much, wet to dry dressings. Or we might perform some kind of autolytic debridement using things like hydrogels or honeys. You could even have biological debridement, things like uh, the old medical maggots, which I'm yet to use myself, but I think it would be kind of cool. So that might be what we need. It might be that wound is in a phase of healing that doesn't require decontamination. Uh, and so then we're going to be protecting it. If it's very wet, we want a dressing that's pulling moisture away from the surface. Mm. If it's a very dry wound, then we want to be applying something that provides some degree of moisture. So we want to hit kind of a slightly warm, moist wound environment. And if we're seeing that natural progress from the inflammatory to the proliferative or healing phase, and then we're starting to see epithelial cells creeping across from the margins, we know we're making progress as long as that's happening in the appropriate times. So, you know, we want to be starting to see granulation. There are various things that change it in the majority of animals, about five to seven days. Uh, and then really we want to be starting to see contraction in about sort of 14 days, followed by slow epithelialization. And that could take a while. But if we're lucky, three weeks or so for complete healing. Depends on the surface area of that wound. If we think that it's getting infected or there's like a lot of bacterial contamination, and we can maybe even use a bit of in-house cytology, so nice and cheap and easy to see if we can see any cocci or rods, then we might provide a dressing that has some bactericidal quality to it, or we might use a lavage that's bactericidal. So I'm quite a fan of hypochlorous acid at dressing changes, just to pull away any biofilm and kill any bacteria on the surface, not doing minimal harm to the cells. Um, but, you know, we can use potentially uh, topical antimicrobials. So I think we're moving away from that now to trying to stick with the antiseptics. And we may use dressings that contain silver or honey as well. Uh, again, slightly dependent on the phase of wound healing which you go for. So my advice, I think, is to have an idea of what you have in stock and have an idea of what you use in each phase of wound healing, whether you need debridement or a particular function, and whether you need a, a bactericidal action. And then really, there's only about six dressings that you need. You can choose your favourite out of what's available out of the tens to hundreds on the market. But think more about, do I have a thing in stock that deals with a wound in this condition? And then you'll be covered. Excellent. So there are quite a few options. Is this an area that has had quite a few innovations in terms of the actual treatments or the management or the processes leading up to the treatments? I think it has, yeah. I, I think we have certain dressings that have managed through careful marketing and also by being very good to dominate the veterinary market. And so we'll use the trade names synonymously with the generic material. Mm. So I talk about, you know, hydrocolloid gel, but we might call it something like Intracite or Cutimed or whatever it is we're particularly mm. using. So a lot of the basic stuff is very, very similar. The innovations come through often piggybacking off, off the human side. And some of those might include, I suppose, negative pressure wound therapy, which is where we apply, it's either continuous or intermittent vacuum to the surface of the wound. The dressing is permanently in place on the animal, but it's just whether the machine does continuous vacuum or intermittent every few seconds. And most of the time we stick with continuous because that's the main work that's been done in small animals. And it's a little bit more comfortable. So they'd have that on for three or four days before a change. And they might have it on for a maximum of a week. 
And it's effectively a granulation tissue machine. I mean, they are phenomenal. So they're brilliant if it's a heavily exudative wound because it pulls all that fluid away and leaves it moist, but not drying it out and not macerating in all that grotty moisture and fluid. And it just creates granulation. So they, they can be brilliantly useful if you're preparing a wound bed. And again, Bearing in mind what's our strategy, it could be preparing granulation tissue for then us to pursue second intention healing, as long as it's in an area where contraction won't be a problem. It might be preparing a wound bed for some kind of reconstruction procedure if we need normal behaving skin in that area. So I've, I've often used it sort of on limb wounds, where then I might place skin flaps and things afterwards, or maybe very pocketing highly exitive wounds. So maybe a big abscess pocket or something like that that's been challenging. Not usually my port of call if I think it's a, a fine and healthy animal. If I decontaminate and create the optimal conditions, you know, it'll heal overnight. I think it's more for our problematic ones. And so they can be purchased or actually they can be hired as well. So they're pretty cool. And I think we've got a, a body of data now that's going back probably 10 years, maybe slightly more, that they can be very effective. A slight issue we have with negative pressure is there are some companies that do supply to the veterinary market, but a lot of them we used to use the human marketed ones. And because they've serviced the machines in the same factory somewhere, they've pulled out of supply in the veterinary sector because they're worried about servicing the machine that's been used on an animal in the same factory as what will be used on people. Although, to be honest, the grotty stuff that people carry is usually far worse than <laughs> anything you'll get off a dog. But that is what it is. So that's what they're worried about. Yeah. I think we're getting better at recognising that topical antiseptics are really, really valuable. And I'm not going back here to sort of some of the things we used to use, like Walpole solution and stuff. We're talking really very delicate things that, you know, would actually be safe to put in your eye. If you can put it in your eye, you can put it on a wound kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so these can include the hypochlorous acids and actually things like the honeys as well. Although honey is slightly pro-inflammatory, so I like that in the early inflammatory, mid-inflammatory phase. I quite like the hypochlorous acids and chemicals like that in, well, any time, because they don't seem to cause any harm to the cells that we're aware of, but they're brilliantly effective against bacteria. It also gives the owners something to do, so they can be involved. They're washing the surface of the wound, so they're performing lavage two or three times a day with a spray bottle, so that's nice and easy, and it means what they're using is controlled. And even though we're not 100% sure, once you breach that bottle, how long the hypochloric acids remain efficient, at least it's a fluid that's running over the surface and washing hair and debris off. And then they could put a little bit of hydrocolloid gel on that open wound and it actually moisturizes it a little bit and leaving no dressings on at all can sometimes be very effective. So I think that's the thing we're moving towards. I used to use quite a few topical antibiotics. You know, obviously you want to choose your antibiotic whether you're finding rods or cocci. So there'll be different susceptibilities due to their innate susceptibility resistance patterns. And, and that's still very effective and is nice because it's not systemic. And so that's still good for antibacterial stewardship. But topical antimicrobials are still probably not as, I don't know what's the best way to put it, as careful in some respects as using these antiseptics, which aren't a problem at all. And I think some of the real advances, we, we're currently using some of these fluorescent imaging devices. And I've got some data that I was actually just looking at yesterday that can show us where the bacteria are replicating on the surface because you see the porphyrins in their uh, sort of waste products. And so you can actually real-time image a wound with a little handheld device uh, with a camera in it, and you can see exactly where areas are fluorescing more or less, which gives you an area of bacterial load. 
And I'll certainly be releasing the data soon in the papers on whether that helps our sensitivity of culture, our specificity of culture, and whether we get better bacterial yields when we swab. What certainly made a difference, I'll tell you, on a practical level, is you clean a wound and then you have a look. And if there's another bit that's still going up, it makes you go back and clean it again. So fantastic in terms of guidance of debridement. But whether that becomes something that we use as a point of care device or not, I suppose depends a a little bit on affordability Mm. and how often it would change what we do. But I think those kinds of innovations are fascinating and mega cool. I mean, it's pretty cool showing that to an owner as well. Like, here's your dog's wound. Here's why it's not been healing. You can see all this red bit just in this area. You know, that that's pretty ace. And it gets them on board for understanding why you keep sedating the dog to, mm-hmm. you know, debride various areas or why it is a bit slow and how it wasn't that somebody was messing up. It was just that this was interfering, that kind of thing. So that that's cool. And I think in the future, you know, I'm sure we'll see additional innovations, but we've got 95% of wounds that do very well and 5% that we struggle with. And we can invest a fantastic amount of cash in trying to deal with these 5%. But if you do the sheer basics then you'll get the vast majority done. So if you're doing the simple things right, the innovations are all very nice, but they really are just the icing on the cake. And I think there are some devices out there which are advertised to fantastically improve wound healing and be like a magic bullet. And I would always encourage people to maybe not be cynical, but certainly be sceptical about some of the claims of these things. You know, if they shave five minutes off the healing time, so what, really? Mm. Um, if they do at all. So I approach these things with scepticism and I would encourage everybody to do that. But it's cool what can be developed and what I I hope looking forward to in the near future. Potentially exciting times and some great stuff out there already, which is fantastic. I should point out that you've written an article in Vet Times. It was an issue 50 of 2022's Vet Times. Wound care and companion animals, options and innovations. You've written that with Emily Frapwell. That will be available in the show notes for our listeners to go to. But some great points there. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Paul, for having me. It's been great to see you. And you. All the best. That's it for Vet Times Podcast this time. Thanks to our guest. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. But for now, thanks for listening. See you next time.